Welcome to The Gradebook, a Tampa Bay Times podcast on Florida education issues. I'm reporter Jeff Solacek. This week, the Florida Board of Education certified its list of most critical needs teachers for the coming school year. Not surprisingly, topping the list again, science and math. This comes at a time when STEM education is supposed to be a big deal for our schools, trying to get our students ready for college and career. And so that is causing another round of concern. It's paired with the Florida Education Association's survey that shows that still the state has about 2,200 teaching vacancies at the middle of the school year. Some teachers are saying that they are really leaving the classrooms, not because they're not eligible, but because they don't want to be in the schools that pay them poorly, don't allow them to teach the way that they know they need to teach to reach the students best. Members of the State Board of Education have suggested that perhaps they need to look at things such as differential pay in order to recruit and retain teachers, and a lot of discussion is going on how to bring those teachers and keep them. Today we're going to have a conversation with Talia Milgram Elcott, Executive Director of 100K in 10, a national effort to train 100,000 STEM teachers by 2021 and solve some of these problems that we're talking about. She's going to talk with us now. So Talia, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I am so happy to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me in to to talk. This issue of finding qualified STEM teachers is a huge one in Florida and, and around the nation, and your organization has been working hard to attack it. What brought you into this issue to begin? We came to this issue because President Obama put out a call in 2011 for 100,000 excellent STEM teachers in 10 years. And that call didn't come out of thin air. It came out of three really important realizations. One is that the economy is being increasingly driven by STEM skills and to fill those jobs and especially to fill those jobs with diverse learners and diverse people from all over and all different backgrounds, we would need to have many more great STEM teachers in classrooms. So much of that critical STEM learning is happening in K-12, to and if kids don't have it there, they, they never catch up. So if we want to fill those seats and fill those jobs with amazing talent from our country and uh, from all different backgrounds and neighborhoods, we will need great STEM teachers. And that was the first. And the second is that more and more, even if you don't take a STEM job, you need great STEM skills even to be a, I'm an active and effective citizen. So many of the decisions that we vote on, so many of the biggest issues that we face have STEM at, at their root, and so we need people to have that learning. And then the third is looking around at those biggest problems that we face, you know, everything from climate, and you all know a thing or two about that down in Florida, uh, to economic inequality, to food shortages, to cancer and Alzheimer's, all of these issues are deep, deep in STEM. And if we want to really solve them, we're going to need many more problem solvers um, from all different, with all different experiences, informing them and guiding them if we want to really crack those nuts. And you know, I would like us to crack those nuts. And so 
I want to know that every kid in every school has amazing STEM teachers. And as you know, well, in Florida, what you're experiencing is true in every state in this country. Right now, we have a, a crisis level shortage of teachers, but especially in STEM. Can I ask you a question uh, on that? Because yeah. when we hear teacher shortage, a lot of people talk about, you know, lots of people not coming out of colleges of education as teachers. But we also are hearing another rumbling from veteran teachers who are saying they just don't want to be in the schools anymore. They're treated poorly. They're not paid well. They're not allowed to teach what they want to teach. I mean, how much of it is a shortage and how much of it is just like an unwillingness to teach anymore? We see the shortage as being in both directions, right? Shortages get caused because not enough people are coming into the pipeline and because too many people are falling through like a leaky a leaky sieve, right? And so there, those are both driving the shortage. We have the lowest numbers of teachers in teacher preparation programs that we, I think, have ever had, significant declines over the last 10 years. And we have more people leaving the profession than the profession can sustain. It's those grumblings that you're hearing about, but all the experience of what makes it hard to be a teacher and to be a great teacher once you get in. So then would something like differential pay to bring in teachers in those areas that are science, math, ones that they're having even more difficulty finding than just your basic teachers, would that even be a good approach or is that just like a band-aid over a much larger problem? That question, I'm so glad you asked it because so often when we approach these um, challenges, we we do band-aids. And sometimes they work a little bit, like we MacGyver these solutions together, but sometimes they fall apart or they don't work at all. And so the organization I lead, 100K and 10, spent about a year talking to thousands of people in all parts of, of the education system, teachers and people who have left teaching, undergraduates who wouldn't even consider teaching, but also principals and university deans and folks who work with teachers, just the whole gamut. And we asked them, why is it so hard to get and keep great teachers? And what we learned from that is there are about a hundred reasons that that is true, that it is hard to get and keep great teachers, especially in STEM, uh, but not all of them are equally powerful. And it turns out that there are some that are way more powerful, impactful than others. And among those are things that relate to the experience of teachers once they get into the classroom. What is it like to work in schools? So does that mean that the principals have to give them more freedom and, does, and therefore the states need to give them more freedom by stopping this whole thing about test scores and test results and how you micromanage every minute of every day? Of the 100 reasons, there were about 10 that were super high leverage. And of those 10, there were four that related to the experience of teachers in the classroom as people who work there. And we have to remember, more Americans go to work in schools than work anywhere else. Yet we rarely think about schools as places where people work. We mostly think about them as places where kids learn. But of course, if kids are going to learn well, those teachers need to be um, happy in their jobs, right? Everything we've learned about running businesses is that people, employees who are unhappy, don't produce good car parts. They certainly don't help to develop good humans. And so there were four really high leverage pieces of the puzzle, all related to that experience of teachers when they go to work. One is whether they have time for professional growth and development during the school day. The second is whether they have time to collaborate with other teachers during the school day. 
The third is whether principals create supportive environments for the teachers and the other adults in the building. And the fourth, what you were just saying about tests, is whether teachers are held accountable for creativity and not just for rote memorization. How do you make those things happen? So that is a great question. We just put out a report called Teachers at Work, Designing Schools Where Teachers and Students Thrive that is filled with recommendations based on a, a ton of research and guided by very diverse organizations from all different perspectives uh, about what schools and what teaching should look like, unions and charters and universities and school districts, all, all had their hands on this. And it's filled with recommendations based on things that are working now and um, with recommendations for things you could do to, to change things. So I'll give a few Pretty simple examples, uh, and then recommend that you check out the report for many more, and that you can find that on our website at 100kin10.org. Is that 10 the uh, number or 10 spelled out, by the way? Thanks for asking. It's 10 the number, so 100-100-kin-10.org, 100k, <clears throat> excuse me, in10.org. And uh, here are a few things. So there's a lot of leeway for principals and school districts, um, and states and cities to design this in ways that work for them. So I'll share some broad principles, and then there are lots of different ways and examples that we've shared about how people do it. But for in terms of time for collaboration and time for professional development during the school day, um, <clears throat> there's some amazing work happening by a firm called Public Impact in a thing they call their opportunity culture, where they have worked with districts all over the country to help them in the same budget and with the same number of teachers, give teachers in the same inside of the same school day, not not no longer hours, no more money, no more teachers, to give teachers time for collaboration and professional development. And the way they do that is they identify some of their best teachers and they make those teachers multiple classroom teachers or master teachers who guide a cluster of younger, newer, more novice teachers. So now the novice teachers have a, a master expert teacher, mentor, who's guiding them, who co-teaches with them, who model teaches, who helps them to plan. The cluster comes together to collaborate and learn. Um, professional development is embedded, and many, many more students are having access to and being supported by some of the best teachers in the whole school or the whole district. So that's like a pretty elegant way of doing it. They have literally figured out all of the details. If you wanted to work with them, you could partner with them tomorrow and switch up your schedule without losing anything and instead creating this time that wasn't there before and giving more students, again, like opportunities to learn with the best teachers and giving those newer teachers opportunities to learn from the best teachers, which we know is one of the best ways that um, teachers learn. So that's just a really practical example for how to do that. Uh, on the principal front, how do you help principals to create more supportive environments? Here, the key is that right now, in most principal training programs, principals are supported primarily to be instructional leaders. It's some support around budgeting, but very little to be uh, essentially HR managers and to be um, setters of culture. We actually know a fair amount about what great culture looks like in workplaces and how to create it. And so there are opportunities here in principal training programs and certification um, and in principal support programs to build out the capacity of principals to be managers. 
Now, are you coming to Florida at all and working with any schools or districts here and finding that they're doing something really right or really wrong? Hillsborough is a partner in 100K and 10 has done some incredible work supporting its STEM teachers and uh, creating more, more financial support for STEM teachers, more opportunities for STEM teachers to collaborate and work together. So we've seen some really great um, steps forward from Hillsborough in all those ways. And uh, I would say that no, no district of any size that we have identified has really nailed this piece of work where you really have um, across the board schools that are great places to work, which is part of why this is so high leverage. You could do this tomorrow. This is stuff that is not that expensive. It does not take another degree. It's not rocket science. Um, and, and it's, it has huge impact if you do it. And in fact, just to like put a fine point on it, it's not just that doing this keeps more teachers in classrooms once they've gotten there. There's actually evidence that if, t- if schools are better places to work, more people will come to work there in the first place. And how do you know if this is working? And I'm not just talking about by keeping people in the classrooms as teachers, but then that they're successful if they're not wanting to all taking tests all the time, for instance. So one of the, that's a great question. One of, we have a team of people that have just started working uh, this month on that question. How would we measure, um, how would we measure what a great workplace looks like in schools? There's actually, as I said, some pretty good data that great workplaces across every industry, that great workplaces lead to better outcomes. So I think we could rely on a lot of that data here. But we don't exactly know what a great workplace looks like in schools. We have a pretty good sense of what it looks like in other places. So we have a team of people working on exactly that question. Uh, on the accountability question around student outcomes, the Gates Foundation spent several years doing research on what they called measures of effective teaching. And what came out of that work at the end uh, were two findings. One was that test scores predict future test scores, and the other was that students predict future test scores. If you ask students the right questions about whether their teachers care about every kid, whether time is spent meaningfully at the school and at the classroom level, kids kids know the answer. Kids have startling clarity about what's really happening and if there's real learning going on. And so I would just say here there's an opportunity to ask kids about their experience. Not a popularity contest, not to you like this teacher, but it, are you learning? Is every kid learning? As, as I said, is time spent meaningfully? And to have a fair amount of data now behind us to say, if the kids say yes, that means that good learning is happening in that classroom. And that doesn't take a lot of tests and it doesn't take a lot of time. So we're headed, we're halfway down on your 10, right? And are you about halfway down on finding and getting those teachers into classrooms and are states making progress? We are. So we I started this work in 2011. We're seven years in, and we have been on track since 2016, since the five-year point, to hit this goal on time. And we've actually been trending ahead for the last few years. So we we are going to hit that goal on time in 2021. The, the organizations in this network, there are 280 amazing organizations from around the country who are working to prepare those teachers, more of them and better, and to keep more of those teachers in classrooms and help them to improve. And these teachers are outperforming 
the rest of the country. Everywhere else, as I said, we're seeing declining enrollment in teacher preparation programs. In our partners, they're seeing increases. So we are, as I said, ahead of goal and going to hit that goal on time uh, by 2021, if not before. Are some of these people industry professionals who just want to teach or is it all young people who want to be teachers and are just going through education for the first time? I mean, what kind of mix of people are we seeing who are becoming these good STEM teachers and how do they find out how to get involved in this type of a program? We, we are seeing a mix, just like you say, and there are um, people who are switching, switching from industry into teaching who have deep STEM backgrounds. We have people who are doing their encore careers. So they've, they may have worked a whole career in, um, in a STEM profession and are now coming to teach. The majority of people who teach uh, in this country continue to be new folks coming out of school or recently coming out of school, and that is the most common trajectory. For, for teaching, for sure. Uh, but we're seeing that whole mix, and we've always known we should be seeing that mix. So these are, um, as I said, people at different stages of their career and people who have come directly through education programs as well as people who have come through STEM degrees and done education as an add-on as they realize that what they really want to do is teach. So if you were in front of the Florida Board of Education when they're discussing these issues, what would be your, your underlying message to them and to the rest of the state as to how do we get to this point of having people who are excellent STEM teachers in front of our students and staying there? All right, so I'm going to get really tactical. Based on all of this research and finding these highest leverage places, here are the things I would say. Say, first of all, think about the experience of teachers when they get in the classroom. If that experience is a great one, if you have teachers who are out there thriving in the classroom, you're gonna have students who thrive and you're gonna have teachers who are huge promoters One of the of teaching to their friends and their students. One of the most important predictors of growth across sectors is this thing that people call net promoter. Whether when you ask somebody, would you recommend to a friend or a colleague to join you in this career? Whether you say yes in a hearty yes, a nine or a 10. So, if that experience of teachers is better, if they are thriving, if they can do their work, um, you're, we're going to see more teachers come and more teachers stay. And that is the most important and the, the best and easiest thing that you can do. The second thing I would say is most states do not have a grasp on their supply and demand by subject area and geography. This showed up as another super high leverage place of action, and it is extremely doable. States need to get a handle on how many teachers or how many vacancies they expect in each subject area, in each geography. Most teaching is very local. People go to school close to for, for teaching close to where they will teach. So we need to know what are those vacancies looking like? Let's project them out enough years and then partner with universities and other preparation programs, residencies, um, alternative certification and others to ensure that we have a pipeline for the demand we know we will have. Again, this is not rocket science, but it will be extremely powerful. There is no excuse, given our ability to track and data that we now have access to, that we have as many vacancies as we have. And I know you mentioned that there are 2,200 vacancies. Here we are in January in schools across Florida right now. We need to do a better job, and it is not that hard to get decent estimates of um, demand and then supply. And to target 
our um, recruitment into universities and other preparation programs based on the demand we know we will have. So that's the second. The third place of highest leverage um, are around total compensation, and we saw some incredible um, data come out, not just about salary, which of course is important, but we actually saw um, data through our work about the power of loan forgiveness and scholarships. So we know that so many students coming out of college these days are bearing an unbelievable debt load, and it's, it's crippling. And when you're thinking about what you're going to do and you're considering your debt, teaching right now might not be affordable to you. You might want to teach. We might have people, in fact, we found evidence that there are people who want to teach but don't think they can afford it. And raising salaries across the board is expensive and sometimes politically difficult. Scholarships and loan forgiveness are easier ways of getting more money into the hands of teachers. And it can be targeted around STEM and other shortage areas like special ed and English language learning. So those would be my uh, recommendations out of, again, this is from thousands of, of points of data guiding us to both the complete picture of why there is a STEM teacher shortage and the highest leverage places to take action. Well, this is really great. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. This is something I know we'll be talking about in Florida for some time. So maybe we'll even see you down here giving some advice. I, I would love to come down and to celebrate all the great things that you all are doing and the solutions you are finding every day and to share everything that we're learning from our network of all these amazing organizations around the country who are figuring this out. So it would be a pleasure. That's the end of our conversation and the end of our podcast. If you'd like to participate, please visit our Facebook page, Tampa Bay Times Gradebook. For all the latest in Florida education breaking news, go to our blog, tampabay.com slash gradebook. Please continue to listen to this podcast, share it with others, and subscribe to it so you can get it more easily. It's on Google, Apple, and all sorts of other places where you can find your podcasts. I'm reporter Jeff Solacek. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.